Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the best of my times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Get three hours of politics without the boring bits. Here on today's episode, we bring you the big thing as ever. Today, we're talking defence. A new YouGov poll for Times Radio reveals four in ten people think the armed forces is too small. It's going to cause problems for Grant Shapps if he has been sent to be Defence Secretary and told to make cuts. Of course, we'll also talk China. This extraordinary story from the, the Sunday Times and the Times that this guy who was working for the China Research Group apparently has been arrested on suspicion of spying for China. So we'll discuss the importance of all of that as well. Before that, as we always do, let's take a look at the news with today's Columnist Panel. The Columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. And Rachel Sylvester's here. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Matt. Good to see you. And Libby Purvis is here. Hello, Libby. Hello, hello. Are you okay, Libby? You sound a bit faint. Yes, no, I've, I've had, I have a summer cold. It's not COVID. I've been tested. It's a summer cold. Well, I'm glad that you've, you, you're, you're with us. We'll try not to, to over, over... Stretching. Don't overtax me. Over, is what, you're, what, you what you're saying? Do not tax my intelligence or body in any way. <laughs> <laughs> Fine deal. Uh, right, I want to talk about something. It's that time of the year. It comes around earlier and earlier every year, where we play the game. Uh, should benefits be uh, uprated in line with inflation? We've got uh, an autumn statement coming uh, in a few weeks' time. Uh, Alex Chalk, who is the Justice Secretary, said the government must do everything it can to help the poorest in society, opening up the prospect of a pound split with Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor. I asked uh, Lucy Fraser, the Culture Secretary, a moment ago. She said, well, this is a matter for uh, Jeremy Hunt. You'll remember that last year at the Tory party conference, I asked Penny Morden, uh, who was then the Commons leader, what she thought. I have always supported, uh, whether it's pensions, whether it's uh, our welfare system, uh, keeping pace uh, with inflation, it's, uh, it makes sense uh, to do so. So that's, that's what I voted for before, and, ha- and so have a lot of my colleagues. Penny Morton making the case uh, this time last year, uh, almost, Rachel. Um, uh, Michael Gove came on the show as well, joined Tory Covers, and uh, said much the same thing, although he was a mere humble backbencher at that point. <laughs> Uh, what's the right thing for Rishi Sunak to do here? Because if it is upwards in line with inflation, inflation is obviously very high, it's going to cost an awful lot of money, which means they'll have to find some money from somewhere else. Yeah, but I think the problem for the Conservative Party is the perception sometimes of the lack of compassion that they have, particularly for those who are really struggling. And at the moment when the cost of living crisis mortgages are going up. People are really, really struggling and on the breadline. A fifth of the country actually now defined as living in poverty, extraordinarily, including many of those who are on benefits. So I think it's pretty hard for uh, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt not to upline the benefits in line with inflation and retain public support and actually the support of quite a lot of their 
cabinet members, let alone backbenchers. As you say, Michael Gove made this argument very strongly last year, uh, Penny Mordaunt also. And the the worst thing for them would be to, um, you know, punish the poor by not uprating benefits and then announcing sort of lavish tax cuts for richer people as a sort of sop to the Tory right. I think it's a really interesting, there is this divide, a fault line within the Conservative Party, and you saw it with Liz Truss, and it's still there under Rishi Sunak, between the kind of compassionate Conservative wing and the kind of more free market, you know, get on your bike, you're on your own side of the Tory party. Um, And it's definitely not been resolved. Um, Libby, the problem is that once you you sort of oh, if if there are things that always go up in line with it, it's the same with the, the the pensions triple lock. There's now an argument about whether or not the pensions triple lock is going to hold. Well, if if you could have an argument every year about whether or not something's going to hold, it's not a lock. Yeah, I think the the pensions triple lock is absolutely iniquitous um, and unnecessary. It is going up more than it should be doing. And I think one of the big problems we have is the working poor. There just should not be so many people who are full-time in work, sometimes two members of a household full-time in work, and still needing to be on benefits. I mean, that should not happen. And what has happened is that uh, pensions and other benefits have tended to rise faster than any assistance at all to the working poor and um, I think you know that they are not they're not being conservative and that they're not uh, making work something which which always pays and which people are proud of we've got most massive amount of people off work and, and off work with disabilities disabilities just including things like anxiety or depression um, you know we don't know how many of these are actually genuinely severe uh, it, it, the whole system needs a lot of reforming but what I find interesting at the moment is Rishi Sunak has got an extraordinary once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to tell the right wing of his party to get stuffed and just do some very very strong important things which they hate uh, now you know and then then he would go down as somebody who did at least in his dying moments of his government he really tried and I don't think there's nearly enough defiance in him against the worst bits of his party. Um, and I suppose, I mean, it's interesting, uh, Rachel, um, there's lots of Tory MPs who think he should take a stronger line. All they mean is that he should do more things that they agree with. And, you know, as you were saying, simultaneously, you've got people saying, well, we shouldn't be doing this on benefits. And then other people saying they should, while others are saying they want tax cuts or more more culture wars or less culture wars. And, and ultimately, in the end, Rishi Sunak's got to pick a side, isn't he? Otherwise, he's just sort of melange vanilla nothing in the middle um yeah i think and i think libby's right and the the point libby makes that actually there's this sort of myth on the right of the tory party that benefit claimants are all kind of welfare scroungers lying around george osborne had that line about you know the curtains twitching while everyone else was going out to work but actually a lot of the people who are in poverty who are relying on universal credit are working incredibly hard so it's not true to say they're you know feckless poor there's this kind of sense of disapproval sometimes of people on benefits uh and actually increasingly people who are working hard can't afford to live anymore yeah yeah um, and I think there's a, the, the government's got to be really careful they don't misunderstand that. And if there's, that sort of gets caught up in some political game, that would be a complete disaster for the Tory party, particularly in those uh, red wall seats in the north and the Midlands that they won from Labour last time. But I suppose the, 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 the lack of economic growth and the, you know, the stagnation of the economy 
coupled with soil inflation, which is, you know, caused by the war in Ukraine and so on. That's what's putting a squeeze on people's income, that you do have so many people in work. You know, if the economy was booming properly, then people's wages would be growing and they wouldn't be relying on the state, you know, as a sort of, ne- you know, a sort of circle of doom, really. And remember, part of that circle of doom was Liz Truss promising unfunded tax cuts um, and not promising to uprate the benefits, which sort of Im- accelerated this doom loop. Oh, well, let's move on from the doom loop, Libby. Let's talk about <laughs> students. Uh, the who are, you know, going back to, to university right now. Uh, this group of Conservative MPs, the, the, the new Conservatives, they call themselves, on the right of the party, there's about 30 of them, uh, they've suggested that young people are being ripped off by poor quality university courses. We remember a few weeks ago, Rishi Sunak announced a clampdown on Mickey Mouse courses before admitting that there wasn't actually anything he could do. Uh, but they say students who don't get GCSE maths or English or get three E's at A-level should be banned from taking out student loans to go to university. Should your ability to get support to go to university depend on your grades, Libby? I think it should depend on a proper judgment and how that is made. We do not know because universities no longer interview and seem to pay most attention to just getting bums on seats and income coming in. Uh, I, I think I think it should depend on whether they are doing something suitable. Um, one of the things I mentioned in my column today, which is about the, that particular sort of cohort starting now who lost so very much sort of socialization and growing up time to COVID. Uh, one of the things that we have been hearing is the enormously high amount of dropouts from students who got accepted onto very tough courses by universities who were relying on their teachers made up optimistic A-level results in, you know, the year of the, the, the fake A-level results. Uh, you know, the, the, only this year have people been examined. And so there, there was a big dropout rate. And if you think of the waste of money and the disappointment and the self-misery of those students who do end up thinking I am good enough to do this very difficult course and then realising actually I can't cope and dropping out with a lot of waste. That has happened. So I think the point of not encouraging everybody to get into a uni, you know, just because it's the thing you do for three years, uh, is uh, it, it's that's not necessary and it's not humane. And the apprenticeship route is an excellent route it needs a lot of work doing to improve it. I mean, Rachel knows more about all this than I do. But I, I think the idea that <clears throat> of not sort of shoehorning people into university just because it's a way of getting rid of them for three years and, and, and putting them in a lot of debt to the government for years at atrocious interest rates, by the way. I, I think that's, that's the, uh, you know, the, there's a small kernel of truth in what those MPs are saying. What do you think, Rachel, given everything you've done with the Education Commission? Yeah. Is this a good idea? Should Should there be a standard of saying, look, you can't... I mean, what's the point of going... You know, if you've really struggled with GCSEs... Should you be getting into so much debt for what's probably not going to be a very good university course? So I think Libby's right and the MPs are right that there needs to be a rebalancing to have more uh, focus on apprenticeships um, and not assuming that, you know, half of people should go to university necessarily. Um, But I think the problem with this particular proposal is it's sort of punishing the students who've been let down often by the education system when there aren't enough apprenticeships or opportunities for other routes for people to do. So what they need to do is build up those vocational alternatives so they're genuinely enough of them. Because at the moment, I mean, some of the apprentices are absolutely brilliant. You know, something like the Dyson apprenticeship 
for engineering is more oversubscribed than lots of uh, university, you know, yeah, Oxford yeah. or Cambridge courses. Um, but there just aren't enough of those apprenticeships. Well, that's what uh, Gillian so, Keegan did. You know, Gillian Keegan she, did, yeah. did, so did, she, did, a, did a proper apprenticeship yeah exactly so i mean it's not that but so you can't sort of say to these students who haven't done very well academically at school we're punishing you now even before there's um the proper alternatives available for them and the danger if you do that i think you're going to end up if you reduce the number of university places and you whack students you know you limit the type of student who can go to university you're always going to disproportionately affect the poorest because they typically do worst in the education system you know that disadvantage gap that's so shocking more than 18 yeah, yeah. months at I 16 the thing is that there could be lots of reasons why you didn't do well in your gcse's yeah at 16 and this is deciding what you're going to do at 18 19 20 20 what you know yeah and there, there, there could be uh so you shouldn't be punishing the students you should be making the system better so that there are more op- diverse opportunities and then uh, libby you've, you've touched on on what students should be doing when they get to university in your column today <laughs> hanging out with a lot of different people. No, it was it was very, very interesting what the Vice-Chancellor of, of de Montfort uh, said was that they might need some help in socialisation because a whole cohort, if you think about it, they were 15 years old, maybe around 15, and just about to get into sixth form and do subjects which they'd actually chosen and, um, uh, and, and be able to go far much more independent of their parents and go to festivals and go to parties and so on, meet new people, get Saturday jobs, suddenly locked down. The first lockdown was bad enough. The second lockdown went on and on and on. And they had, and all the time they were being told, you've got to spare the old, look after the old, it's your responsibility. If you sit on a bench in a park with your mates, you're going to kill a granny and make a tired nurse cry on the television. And this stuff does get into people's heads, a sense of, of other people being a bit dangerous. At the same time, they've got social media. And so, you know, they, they have these sort of terrible, you know, echo chambery little groups of fake virtual friends. And this de Montfort uh, vice-chancellor simply thinks they may need a bit of help in frightening things that we all went through, like going to a room full of total strangers and wondering if they're looking at you <laughs> and all the wrong clothes. Oh, come on, you know it. You know, and, but getting, getting along with loads of other people, which most of us managed to do in our early gap years, jobs and so on which I reminisce about a bit in the piece um, you know they, those those things make you more confident they make you happier they, they they ward off all this depression and anxiety that we hear everyone suffers from it's really interesting that Rachel the the, the, the specific cohort who just missed out on that being thrown together and actually even without COVID the fact that you can retreat to Netflix on your laptop social media on your phone so you're not forced into you know forced fun and socializing and, and that sort of thing and as a result you sort of curate your own echo chamber i mean we're all everyone's a bit guilty of that now probably. yeah i think one of the most appalling things about the pandemic was the way in which the young were completely almost discriminated against actually they lost out every opportunity and still losing out to some extent um i've got a son who's just going off to university you know he didn't do his gcse's i've say he's not having any trouble with parties but (laughs) (laughs) um they are i think it's really been incredibly tough for that generation and the ones who have been at university now you know the fact that they're 
finals aren't being marked, yeah. they're not being able to graduate. It just sort of feels like at every turn, then they come out, they can't afford to buy a house, you know, they've got these huge student debt. No wonder anxiety levels are so high among um, that age group. Off to the new forest now, where residents are so fed up with burglars and shoplifters that the police refuse to investigate. They're teaming up to deter criminals. Uh, including in one case, last month, Steve, thieves stole over £4,000 in seven minutes from Colin Bundy's farm in Lindhurst, and then £10,000 worth of stuff from the next farm within another 10 minutes. Even with CCTV, it's not enough uh, to, uh, to, to, to solve the case, apparently. Well, Colin Bundy joins me now. Hi, Colin. Hi there, how are you? I'm very good. I'm very well. I, I love Lindhurst. What a lovely part of the world to live. But uh, you've got big problems with crime. Tell me about the scale of the problem. Well, we are actually in Minstead, about two miles away from Lindhurst. And it's a case of, it's when is it your turn next? When are you going to be burgled? Um, as I said, around here, 84. I think the, the Guardian reported on the 2nd of September, 84 unsolved crimes. It's the record in the country. That was on the 2nd of September. That's now probably 86, 87. We were done again on the weekend. So it's ongoing and nothing's being done about it. Well, I was going to say, but presumably with such high numbers, the police are out in force. There's a high mm. police presence. Uh, they are patrolling the streets of Lindhurst to try and deter future burglaries. You'd like to think so, but cuts and understaffing, that's not the case. This, well, the new forest covers from Totten down to Bournemouth. I think it's something like 219 square miles. I've been told, not, not this is not confirmed, but in any one night you may have two cars patrolling the new forest. That's you know, two policemen in each car, so that's four cars, four policemen in the new forest. Um, and so, you know, we get broken into, you make a phone call, the police will turn up two to three days later and ask, how did they make you feel? What happened? You know, what impact did this have? How did they make me feel? It made me feel annoyed. The police didn't turn up as and when I called them. So then uh, explain what's happening then. What are people doing in terms of taking uh, matters into their own hands? You're, lots of headlines saying you're turning vigilante. Literally. Well, it's the only choice we have. I mean, I have CCTV cameras here. So I have, you know, we've paid £3,000 for these cameras. And uh, they gave me a great video of the uh, burglary happening. So I have colour images, um, which I can then send via WhatsApp, via Facebook, to the locals straight away as it's happening or just after it's happened. And they then can then look out for the for the cars, the vehicles, the people, and they can report it to uh, you know to the locals, say that it's happening now. This is what you need to be looking out for, which is a much more effective way of fighting the crime than it is of phoning the police, who may turn up in three days' time. Libby, this is—I mean, uh, this is a particular issue in Lindhurst, but I'm, I'm sure it's a problem that's being spread, you know, repeated right across the country. Yeah, I think it, it's interesting that for quite a long time, penalties for shoplifters and police reaction to shoplifters has been very pianissimo. And people have tended to say in some publications, so on, well, you know, this, these are hungry times, you know, people are desperate. The reason there is this increase in shoplifting is people are desperate for nappies and baby powder. And in fact, what has been happening is it's become industrialised. You know, gangs, highly organised, get the steaks, get the drinks, sell it on to the local pub. You know, people are... It, 
there's a huge sort of fast big scale shoplifting raids going on and uh, so we need to take the whole thing very seriously and say this is theft this is robbery this is burglary it's got to be treated very seriously and I'm quite pleased to hear about all these uh, high-tech things and the police sharing information uh, facial recognition technology and so on I think uh, otherwise you you get a sense of everything falling to yeah, pieces yeah. and that uh, we don't need the problem is, Rachel, it's not very well and good having all this technology, um, but, you know, um, uh, Colin's got all this technology to, to, you know, capture the CCTV, but something's got to be done. The police have got to yeah. turn up, look at it, cap- trace the person, do the legwork. I think it's appalling what Colin's been going through. Um, but also, I think it's very dangerous if sort of public support for the police is yeah. so eroded because it is a kind of policing by consent and I'm really I, I also I wanted to ask Colin what would you do if you found out or you could see from your video who it was who was doing this would you go around and confront them what would you how would you how far would you take it well we, it's getting to the point where we have to I mean the irony is here it's at 84 unsolved crimes now, in the field next to me, or the the, uh, the graveyard next to my farm, is buried uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of the most famous crime fighter in the, in you know crime solver in the UK. Now, it's ironic that he's there, and we have the record for the most unsolved crimes because the police aren't putting the time and the effort and the resources into looking into these crimes, and it's being yeah, it's coming down to us. So, would I go out and risk my health? Um, you know, injury by tackling these people who they don't care. They they operate with impunity because there is there is nothing to stop them. The police aren't going to turn up and uh, and stop them. Even if they get caught, the law isn't there to put them in jail. Mm. They just walk. You know, they 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 might get some few hours of community service. Um, so for them, it's a business, and they take it as a business, and they have, you know some risks of getting caught but you know 15 grand's worth of gear in under 30 minutes and that's from two farms we're getting an average of two farms two houses burgled every week or two weeks here at the minute so well, you imagine the amount of money that's going out of minstead oh, colin well best of luck with it i mean I, 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 my big fear is if somebody does go out and tackle someone uh, and something goes wrong the police will be around pretty blooming quick but uh, colin really good to speak to you colin bunday uh, from uh lintester libby purvis Rachel Sylvester. love to see you both and of course you can read them both in the times every week just get yourself a subscription go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box and if you're a student maybe you've just started university just settling in with your ikea pot plants well here is a great offer you can get a year's subscription for 9.99 for three years it's a new student subscription so uh, yeah just go to the times and sign up this is a student subscription go to the times.co.uk forward slash students at 9.99 for a year if you are a student right coming up we'll take a look at the state of defense You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. This is likely to be one of my last appearances at this dispatch box. It's been the greatest privilege to have served the Security Secretary of State for Defence for the last four years. I have run complex infrastructure-heavy departments uh, in the past. Uh, Don't underestimate me when it comes to defending the country or, or the department. 
Yeah, there's a changing of the guard at the Ministry of Defence. Ben Wallace is no longer Defence Secretary. Grant Shapps has replaced him. And he's got quite the formidable intro. The largest war in Europe since 1945. A military badly wanting a government to commit to greater investment in response to that war in Ukraine and looming threats beyond, including that posed by China. So we're going to take a look at the challenge ahead with a former chief of the general staff and an expert on emerging reforms of warfare. And then we're going to hear from the Shadow Defence Secretary, John Healy, about what Labour might do differently. But let's begin by uh, joining me in the first in the studio is the former chief of the general staff, Lord Dannett, the author uh, of a new book called Victory to Defeat, the British Army... 1918 to 1940. Uh, good to see you. Thanks so much for coming in. Uh, let's start by talking about the uh, the state of the armed forces. We asked you, Gov, to, to do some polling for us and take a look at the issue. 41% of people think the UK's armed forces are too small to defend the nation. Are they right? Well, Matt, good morning. Uh, very good to be here and to, to join you. Yes, I think that 40% are right. Um, of course, it makes you wonder what the other sixty percent think. But, uh, <laughs> well, I think that there aren't many people who think that it's uh, that the uh, the armed forces are too small. Uh, put it that way. Twenty two percent, so it's about the right size. Thirty one percent, so they didn't know, uh, and the rest uh, said it was uh, the the, uh, the armed forces were too large. So yeah, it's a big, the biggest group think that it's too small. The serious point, of course, is that 40% is right, in my view, and that view is shared by many people. Indeed, last week we had a debate in the House of Lords. There were 29 speakers, and all 29 speakers in the House of Lords, perhaps fairly predictably, all argued that we should be spending more more money on defence. And you ask yourself the question, why? Well, thank you, don't have to look very far, and we see a very bloody war being fought in Ukraine. Uh, yes, uh, the government's um, integrated review, which was published in 21 and refreshed earlier this year, talked about a tilt towards the Indo-Pacific, and that's fine. That's recognising the competition, the challenge from, from China. But then, of course, we have got this bloody war in Ukraine, and we have to remember that we are a European country, that we play an important part in the security, infrastructure and architecture of, of Europe. And many other countries... Poland in particular, are significantly increasing their defence expenditure, um, and we're not. And, and there is a parallel here, and I, I do come back to the parallel we draw in my book, um, Victory to Defeat, 1918 to 1940. Uh, how was it that we, with allies, beat the Germans in 1918, and less than 22 years later, we were our army was defeated in France in May, June 1940. And you just look at the paucity of expenditure on our armed forces, and particularly on the army in the interwar years. Now, these figures are interesting. In 1935, we in this country were spending 3% of GDP on defence. Currently, it's just over 2%. But in 1939, when the bad stuff hit the fan, it had to shoot up to 18%. And in 1940, it was 46%. Now, do we want to run the risk of having to learn the lessons of history again? Or should we not be increasing our defence expenditure now to make sure that this country and our people are secure against not just a threat in Europe, but actually an aggressive dictator who's already launched a vicious war? But the, the, a counterpoint would be that part of the reason why the, the, arm, the armed forces were shot, I think it was down to 152,000 now, about half of those are in the army, and the rest are split between the, the Navy and the RAF, is that, that Britain is not about to embark on another Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, the political... I mean, we couldn't even get involved in Syria. The political will to, to, to launch an offensive like that just isn't there, regardless of what, what might happen abroad. And nobody's really 
realistically expecting anyone to invade Britain. So although there are, you know, clearly there are issues about providing, you know, military support and, and probably money to Ukraine, it's not the same situation as the 1930s, is it? It's not the same situation, but there are strong similarities. Yeah. Um, we are a key member of NATO. Yeah. Um, now, Ukraine is not a NATO member. Ukraine is fighting its own battle, and we are supporting Ukraine as a sovereign country to try and regain totally its own territory. But that's not going to wish the threat from Russia away. Uh, even if Putin goes and is replaced by someone else, we've got a very aggressive Russia at the present moment. And therefore, it's incumbent on NATO to make sure we have strong deterrent forces to make sure there is no further expansion. Now, I go back to the analogy of the interwar years. After the First World War, there was an absolute determination that that had been the war to end all wars, yeah. and there was a government policy, there would be no major war for 10 years, and that rolled on year on year on year. Consequently, when Hitler became a threat from 1933 onwards, and he pushed, uh, reoccupied the Rhineland, invaded Sudetenland, took off a chunk of Czechoslovakia, we had no army that we could deploy to say to him, stop. And there is a very strong argument that if we had deployed an expeditionary force of, say, four to six divisions, along with the French, that would have caused Hitler to back down, and we may never have got as far as having to fight the Second World War. You're absolutely right. We can't see anyone wanting to attack this country at the present moment. But you can't ever predict the future. Russia is an aggressive threat. And then, of course, remember that this country is one of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, G7, G20, all those international obligations. So who knows where we're going to find ourselves having to deploy troops in the future. It was only 10, 12 years ago when I was the army chief that we were fighting campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan. Who can say never again? And is that the problem that, that because the prospect of a war is so awful, there's a tendency maybe amongst politicians and the public to think everything everything will work out all right in the end, as it was 18 months ago. Of course, Putin's never going to actually invade Ukraine. It's a, you know, it's a constant, it's a posture. That actually we need to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. It's fine to hope for the best, but you, as long as you do prepare properly for the, best, for, the, for, for the worst. Professor Sir Michael Howard famously said, think about predicting the future is not to be so wrong that when the future reveals itself, you can't adjust very quickly. And what that translates in, in military terms is to make sure that as a nation, we've got a capable set of armed forces that have a, a wide variety of capabilities that whatever the challenge is that's thrown at us, whether it's close to home or defending a vital interest further away, we've got the capability to contribute. Now, almost certainly contribute with allies in an alliance like NATO or a coalition basis rather like the two Gulf Wars, but to make sure that we can maintain our international obligations. Do you think as a country we need to prepare for the, the prospect that we will, would see British troops deployed in a conflict in the foreseeable future? I'm absolutely certain we will see British troops deployed in a conflict at some point in the future. Now, one can't put um, a time scale on it. I can't put a, a geographic location on it. But um, history shows us that there is an inevitability, as much as we'd like to think we live in peace and security, and we'll do so for all time. That is just not how the real world is. Yeah. So a, a responsible government ought to make proper provision. <clears throat> and, and the argument is, let's face it, Grant Chaps has now come in as Defence Secretary. When he was bidding to be Prime Minister, he was talking about spending 3% of GDP on defence. Um, 
we are somewhere between 2% and 2.5%. Um, so, Mr. Shapps, um, are you going to uh, live up to your words or, or are you going to um, listen to what the Chancellor says and says, well, sorry, Grant, we can't afford any more? Actually, with the threat that we have facing us in, in Europe, the responsible thing to do is to spend more on defence and particularly to spend more on our army. And again, <laughs> go back to the lessons of yeah. the interwar years in, in the book. That's exactly the message that we're trying to put across. That actually investing early prevents, might prevent huge investment later. Um, and spending. I want to ask you about this question that some people have raised about Grant Shapps and his suitability. People liked Ben Wallace because he'd served himself. Uh, he was a military man and he'd been at defence for a long time. He did security before that. Um, a couple of examples of questions being raised about Grant Shapps' understanding the military. This is him talking about aircraft carriers. Our military today has the biggest warships that it's ever had. Those aircraft carriers are the largest uh, carriers the, the RAF's ever had. People pointing out the, the, the aircraft carriers belong to the Navy, uh, not the RAF. He was also asked how many ranks there are in the Army. <laughs> not off the top of my head, but on your main <laughs> question, uh, what I would say is, look, what the Ministry of Defence needs is highly experienced cabinet ministers who can run a, a complex infrastructure. So it's slightly turned into a bit of a parlour game. Can you catch Grant Shapps out asking him defence questions? Does it matter not having a defence, a military man at defence, any more than it matters not having a teacher at education or a doctor at health? No, it doesn't matter at all. What, what does matter is whether uh, any incoming Secretary of State for Defence is prepared to do their homework very early on, to listen carefully to the myriad of briefings that they will get, to take advice from the rest of his ministerial team, which in this case are, are very experienced, as indeed the senior civil servants are, and critically to form a good early relationship with the service chiefs, the chief of the defence staff and the heads of the three services, and be prepared to listen. And when defence works well is when the Secretary of State gets on delivering the politics and the service chief get on delivering the military capability. Keep that in lockstep, the thing will work well. So I just wait with interest to see how Mr Shapps get on. Uh, I wish him all the very best. It's a complex and a difficult portfolio uh, in defence, but I hope he does well. Ben Wallace did it well for four years. Yes, he's an ex-soldier, but um, I worked for, or have worked with many Secretaries of State for Defence, most of whom didn't have military experience. It's fine, provided that good relationship is there. Uh, just stay with us. We've been sort of looking back at the, the history uh, and what we can learn from history. Let's look to the future as well. We could bring in Elizabeth Braw, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, who's on the line. Hi, Elizabeth. Good morning. Um, I just wonder your, your reflections on what Lord, Lord Dannett was saying about the need for the armed forces you know, to grow, to match the threat of Russia, and learning those lessons from, from history. What, what for you do you think the future looks like? Is it is as gloomy as it, as it was in the 1930s? Well, it's certainly gloomy, but, it, but it's gloomy in different ways or perhaps additional ways, uh, perhaps additional ways, which is that we face not just the, the, the threats that, that uh, Chamberlain saw in, in, in the 30s and, and other politicians, but uh, non-military threats as well that are growing. And I don't, I think, I don't need to remind anybody of what those threats are. But, uh, and uh, Lord Annette, I, I'll, I'll absolutely agree with you uh, that uh, when, when uh, Chamberlain, when he felt that he couldn't, uh, he couldn't stand up against Hitler, it was because he didn't have armed forces that were big enough to do that at that point. And so he had to wait and, and then he was seen as an appeaser. But if I may add this, Matt, um, 
And crucial piece is, here is convincing the UK or talking, having a conversation with the UK public about what the armed forces do and what, uh, how much the UK public is willing to spend. Because at the moment, the UK public it likes the armed forces. In fact, uh, they, they really respect them. It's one of the most respected institutions in the UK, but, but the, the average citizen doesn't know what the armed forces do. And I was just looking at the, the British Legion survey. 80 percent uh, think the armed forces do a good job. 69 percent don't know what the armed forces do. Uh, I suppose that's the thing. It's actually 73 percent, I think, in our poll said that they still support Britain's uh, efforts to support uh, Ukraine. They say that they think the armed forces are too small. But yeah, you, I suspect if we asked them how, how large the armed forces, we might have had a slightly different answer. Is there a point, um, Elizabeth, I know you look at some of the the, the hybrid and grey zone threats as they're, as they're known. Yeah, we're seeing... The, the much of the fighting in Ukraine being fought by by drones and, and so on. Do we need a huge army, boots on the or boots on the ground, if you like, when 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 technology is changing the nature of warfare? Well, see, this is the the the, the really challenging part that we need. Uh, both uh, both kinds. And the question is, who should do the non-kinetic part? So the armed forces are very good at, at military defense, clearly. But who's supposed to do the other part? And at, at the moment, we are not really, we don't have a government department or agency that does defense against non-kinetic threats. Obviously, we have uh, intelligence agencies, but we don't have agencies that, that, uh, that detect and counter subversion of all kinds, or indeed, uh, aggression of a, of a non-military kind. And so there has always been this expectation that whatever happens, the armed forces will take care of it, including when there is there are prob- problems stocking supermarket shelves. People think that, oh, you know, we can always uh, uh, ask the British Army to do it if, if nothing else works. <laughs> well, the, the armed forces aren't big enough to do that too if they are supposed to do the military defence that is their expertise. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, we, we should talk about, we talked about, about Ukraine, we should talk about China as, as well, Lord Dunnett. Um, what have you made of the, the revelations uh, in the Sunday Times and the Times uh, about this researcher. His name's Chris Cash. He's put out a statement this morning saying, you know, denying these allegations, although uh, he does appear to be the guy who was, has been arrested on, on suspicion of spying for China. How concerned should we be about the threat from China? I think we should be very concerned about the threat from China. Um, there is the focus on this chap and he's denying being involved. That's totally irrelevant. Um, <clears throat> other people could investigate whether he's... <clears throat> um, guilty of some kind of um, um, nefarious activity. But the wider point is, and on another station this morning, I heard a former head of MI6 talking. We all know that China is being very aggressive in the way it wants to compete uh, with the West. Um, Many of our things that we think are secure, our conversations, our business transactions, uh, the Chinese have penetrated and penetrated for quite some time. They will compete very aggressively and we have to protect ourselves and we also have to compete. We need to take the threat from China, both in a security sense and in an industrial and commercial sense, very, very seriously, and make sure that we protect ourselves and compete. Um, uh, Elizabeth, is it right you, you've crossed, your, your paths have crossed with, with this Chris Shaw guy? Correct. Yes, and, and I think, uh, Matt, what, what strikes me about this is the. Now, he says he's innocent. Uh, I have dealt with him because he, uh, as was his. Uh, 
is his, was his job in this in this position he uh, dealt with with academics like me and and uh, in fact at one point asked if he could co-author a piece now I only exceptionally uh, rarely co-author pieces so I didn't uh, but it's the the nature of of this sort of semi-academic role means that that you have you can reach out to basically anyone and it's perfectly leg legitimate and I think that's why uh, these positions are perhaps uh, more exposed than any other functions, many other functions, uh, because everything, basically anything you do, looks legitimate in some way, or is le the legitimate work uh, of somebody uh, doing that job properly. And as a result, uh, it's it's very attractive, perhaps to, to a hostile regime seeking to, to, to undermine uh, our, our society. Well, we should, yeah, we should stress it. So Chris Cash, he's 28. Uh, he was uh, the director of the uh, China Research Group, which was linked to Tom Tugendhat, now the security minister, Alicia Cairns, who chairs the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Uh, he was arrested or, uh, under the uh, the Official Secrets Act. Rishi Sunak then raised this issue with the Chinese Premier only yesterday. In his statement, he said, I feel forced to respond to the media accusations I'm a Chinese spy. It is wrong that I should be obliged to make any form of public comment on the misreporting that has taken place. However, given what has been reported, it is vital that it is known that I'm completely innocent. I've spent my career to date trying to educate others about the challenge and threats presented by the Chinese Communist Party to do what has been claimed against me in extravagant news reporting would be against everything I stand for. Uh, but plenty more on that, um, uh, I'm sure, in the in the House of Commons and so on. Uh, questions have been asked about uh, security investing. Uh, just finally, um, uh, Lord Dana, before I let you go, the, 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 the challenge, at what point does the economic threat posed by China, which is obviously huge because it's a huge economy, actually drift into a military threat that Britain should be worried about? Well, it comes back to the basic point <clears throat> that Britain with allies and, and in particular it's the United States that's taking the lead in, in containing Chinese expansion in, in that part of the world because, let's face it, um, America is a Pacific power. Mm. Um, we are as good allies as the Americans are in support and that's, that's why we have a capability which we can contribute. The important thing is that the theme of our relationship with China should be competition. It can be aggressive competition. What we absolutely need to avoid is getting into military conflict. Mm. Of course, the issue of Taiwan crops up fairly regularly, and it's important that the United States gives very clear security guarantees to Taiwan because there are very many other interests in that part of the world, not the least of securing South Korea and Japan to an extent, who rely on American security guarantees. So Taiwan is a very important litmus test, if you like. But um, the theme with our relationship with China should be competition, aggressive competition if necessary. We've got to avoid conflict. Yeah. But come back to my basic point, yeah. back to the interwar years, yeah, yeah. is that if you don't have a capability that is credible, you can't defer someone, deter someone who should be who wishes who wishes you ill yeah. and might be aggressive against you times radio with matt chorley very good morning to you good to have you with us matt chorley on times radio we're talking defense on the show today we've had some polling from YouGov asked uh, the british public uh, what they think about the size of the armed forces uh, 41 percent said the armed forces were too small uh, 22 percent was about the right size so what's that six almost two-thirds of people a third didn't know, and the only of about one in ten, a bit less than that, uh, thought the armed forces were too large. Amongst people who voted uh, Conservative in 2019, 61% thought the armed forces uh, were too small. Uh, but let's now speak to uh, John Healy, Labour's shadow uh, defence secretary. Hi, John. Good morning. Uh, so, John, uh, are the great British public right? Are the armed forces too small? Uh, 
they're right, uh, and Labour's been arguing for more than two years for the government to halt further cuts to the British Army. It's set to be the smallest since Napoleon's time. And if you look across all the forces, they've cut since 2010 45,000 full-time forces personnel. That's a third of the number we've now got left. So how big would the armed forces be under a Labour government? Those are decisions that we can only take and rightly take as part of a a bigger plan. That's why I've said that within the first year, if Labour do get into government, we'll undertake a full defence and security review. It'll be there that we'll be able to get access to the information about costs, about the threats we face, the capabilities of our adversaries, and also the state of our own forces. So it'll it'll give us the basis for making the big long-term decisions about defence planning and the sort of budgets required to keep Britain safe. But I'd just say to you, Labour will always spend what's required to keep the country safe. And if you want a measure of what politicians do rather than what they promise, in the last Labour year of government in 2010, we were spending 2.5% of our growth income, our GDP on defence. That's a level that the Tories in the last 13 years have never got anywhere near to matching. So if you become Defence Secretary, you'll spend at least 2.5% on defence? No, we'll make the judgments about what's needed as part no, John, of that John, first... You just, John, you were just boasting about how Labour spends 2.5% on defence. No, I was saying judge, judge politicians on actions, not words. Well, no, I'm judging you on what you're going to do in government if you win next year, not what you did 13 years ago. So I've been very clear. Most of the most important information to make these firm decisions, fix these figures, as well as defence plans, cannot be done in opposition. We don't have access to that highly classified information. That's why in that first year, we'll undertake a full defence review um, and we'll make such decisions as part and parcel of our planning for the long-term future. But we will defend this country. We will keep our citizens safe and Keir Starmer and I both served in government we know this is the first duty of any government Um, I suppose people listening to this John will think you want us to vote for you Uh, you won't tell us what you're going to spend on defence and presumably you won't tell us uh, how you would raise that money to do it don't don't the public deserve some honesty that you might say we're going to put put a penny on income tax in order to grow the uh, the armed forces, because you say they're too small, and to spend maybe 2.5%, maybe more. Others have could Grant Shapps, when he ran for, as Richard Dunham was saying a moment ago, Grant Shapps, when he ran to, for the Tory leadership, he said, uh, promised 3%. Don't you need to say something before a general election on what could be billions and billions of pounds and national security, other than we can't tell you yet? I think you make my case for me. Uh, people are right to judge politicians on what they do, not what they say. Grant Shapps No, but you're in opposition, Grant so all we have is well, to, they to go making, on is what you say. No, so they were making those promises in, in government. I can't and I won't make those decisions uh, until we're in government, until we have access to the information required, until we make the sensible long-term decisions. But we will need to end the hollowing out of our armed forces, as the previous Defence Secretary Ben Wallace described them over the last 13 years. We will need to fulfil our NATO obligations in full in the face of growing concerns that Britain has the capability of doing that. And we will always be driven by the threats and not by the costs. Um, I suppose, isn't this part of the problem why people get frustrated with Labour politicians? You're very good on the... Uh, the analysis on the Conservative failing, uh, as you uh, portray it. When we come to the question, well, what would you do instead? Whether it's concrete in schools or uh, hospital waiting lists or any number of of issues facing the country, 
your answer is you just have to trust us and wait and see. We'll tell you later on when we're in government. No, we will do what's necessary to defend the country and keep citizens safe. Now, that means redoubling our British leadership within NATO. That's been lacking in recent years, making sure that we will fulfil in full our NATO obligations. It means rebooting the moral covenant the country makes with our armed forces. It is unforgivable that the level of satisfaction with service life has now plummeted to record lows, that 4,000 service personnel are living in accommodation that is so poor even the MOD won't charge them rent. And so we will implement uh, and put into legislation in full the Armed Forces Covenant and we will legislate to establish an Armed Forces Commissioner as an independent voice reporting to Parliament that can put ministers on the spot as well as service chiefs when they don't do the job of making sure our forces have the equipment, the housing and their families aren't supported properly as we've seen in the last 13 years. Um, you mentioned that leadership in NATO is, isn't... I mean, it seems a, a, a bit of an unfair charge there that actually the UK's response to uh, the situation in Ukraine has been widely praised around the world. Our relationship with NATO is so good at one point Ben Wallace was in the running to, to lead it. Don't you have to give the government some credit for that. And in fact, if you look at, despite their total collapse on lots of other issues, uh, when it comes to defence, the YouGov monthly tracker is the only issue the Tories are still in the lead on. The Tories, 26% trust the Tories on defence, only 19% trust trust Labour on the defence. You've got a long way to go to make up the idea that, that Labour can be trusted with the defence of the country, haven't you? Of course, we have a lot more work to do this side of the election. But I base my base my points on the fact that this is a government that has not spelt out its vision for how Britain will lead in the next 10 years in NATO. It faces growing questions from military chiefs in other countries about our ability to fulfil our basic NATO obligations. But I do pay credit to the government for the leadership it's displayed over Ukraine. Uh, ben Wallace has been great at getting military support to Ukraine in helping other countries do more. And in that, and in re reinforcing NATO allies, the government has had Labour's total support throughout, and that will continue. Just finally then, on the, on the question of, is the armed forces too small, too large, or about the right size? You appear to agree it's too small. After, let's say, five years of a Labour government, will the armed forces be bigger? I've argued for a halt in uh, the planned cuts to the army. Uh, as Likia as Starmer has as well. That's an important first step. But we can only fix those plans. Um, we can only do so as part of a full defence and strategic review. We'll undertake that within the first year. And we'll also, in the first 100 days, undertake a NATO test so you won't, you of the major commit, projects to make sure that we can fulfil our NATO obligations. Bigger. I'm not asking you for numbers and pounds, shilling and pence. You won't even say that the Labour government would have a bigger armed forces. Because quite, so, quite evidently, in order to fix those figures, you have to have the plans. You can base your plans on an assessment of the threats. And sad to say, unlike in other countries, we don't have a system in Britain where those in opposition like me and Keir Starmer have access to the classified information that would allow us, in advance, rightly, of winning the election, to make those judgments. John Healy, really appreciate your time today. Labour Shadow Defence Secretary joining us on Times Radio. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. <laughs>